Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, this is Ollie telling you about another podcast I host, Unfiltered. It's an interview show. We've talked about sex work, addiction, and battering racists, and we're only a few episodes in. Some of the guests so far, One Direction's Niall Horan, GOAT footballer Viv Miedemar, and Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Just search Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore wherever you get your podcasts. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Love podcasts, hate nonsense. It's the Politics Show Pubcast, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Come on! Where am I? (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) This is the home of serious political debate. John John Trickett, MP, is joining us. Um, Ava Santina, the Capital J journalist and the only lobby accredited journalist at Politics. Joe, Ava, how are you? Are you stammer every time you say journalist? I think it's intentional. It's not intentional, no. It's just I'm so excited when we start the podcast that I struggle to get my words out. Uh, and John Trickett, how are you? I am very good indeed. Yeah, excited to be good. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating conversation. It absolutely is. I think we should just get straight into it. Let's okay, um, go for it. Let's, let's do it. Roll the clip. Roll the clip. Roll the clip. Mr Speaker, when the Prime Minister took office nine months ago, the NHS waiting list had 7.2 million people on it. What's the number today? Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, the, the reason that the NHS waiting lists are higher today than they were then, after actually being stable uh, for the first few months as we put in place new initiatives, is very simple, and that's because the NHS has been disrupted by industrial action, Mr. Speaker. Now, the, we've put very clear plans in place to bring down waiting lists in urgent and emergency care, in primary care, in ambulances and outpatients and electives. Those plans were working and will continue to work, but we do need to end the industrial action. So I'd ask the honourable gentleman, if he does care about bringing the waiting list down, does he agree with me that consultants and junior doctors should accept the pay deal that the government offers? Mr Speaker. This, the Prime Minister likes to get away of 
The more that you stop me getting on with the questions, the more I'm going to keep him here. So it's up to you where long you want the Prime Minister. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I'm, I'm sure the whole House is pleased that he's graced us with his presence today. But we don't get any more answers when he's here than when he's not. He knows the answer. Seven point million people currently on the waiting list. Prime Minister, that's the highest it's ever been. It means that since he stepped foot into Downing Street, 260,000 people have been waiting in daily agony for things like hip and knee replacements while he boasts. Has he figured out why, after nine months, dozens of gimmicks, umpteen broken promises, his government is failing more patients than ever before? Mr Speaker, again, I don't think we heard an answer to the question. And also, I don't want you holding up proceedings, Prime Minister. It's, it's very simple. If, if the honourable gentleman actually looked at what was happening earlier this year, what we have seen, what we have seen actually, is that our plans were beginning to work. Ambulance and waiting times down from an hour and a half over Christmas to around half an hour virtually eliminating the number of people waiting one and a half years for treatment, making huge progress on GP access. Now, all those things, all those plans we put in place, all the funding, all the extra ambulances, the extra discharge, all starting to make a difference, all held up by one very simple fact, industrial action in the NHS. Now, again, I'll give him a second chance. If he really wants to get people the health care that they want, will he agree with me? that those doctors should accept the recommendations of the independent pay review body. OK, Ava, so Keir Starmer's decided to talk about waiting lists. Mm. Um, 7.2 million people at the last time of counting. Uh, it's almost certainly higher than that, and most estimates say that there's probably about 8 million now on mm. the NHS waiting list. Um, why do you think Keir has chosen to ask the Prime Minister about that today? Well, he asked it, he asked it in a very clever way, which is not something I usually say about Keir Starmer. Sorry, John. Um but he did. And, you know, the prime minister was unable to answer that question because I, su- supposedly because he doesn't actually know what the figures are, mm. the current figures, and possibly also because it's quite embarrassing to have to uh, admit the, the waiting list is that long. But Rishi did kind of come back with a bit of a punch because he said to Starmer, if Labour could encourage people to get off of the picket lines and back into work, that would somehow clear the backlog. Mm. John, um, what did you make of Rishi Sunak's suggestion that the reason why there are so many people on NHS waiting lists is industrial action? Well, the truth is, when Labour left office, and I'm not here to beat the drum particularly, there were 2 million on the waiting list. Before COVID, there were 4 million. So the truth is, the Tories had doubled the number of people waiting, even before COVID and the, the strike wave. They don't like the NHS. In fact, they hate it. They hate it because... Uh, you know, you get in a queue, the person with the most severe illness gets treated first, not the one with the biggest wallet. And that's completely against Tory values. So for me, uh, they're against it. If I can tell you a story quickly, when I met a guy, he'd, he, an old guy, he said he remembered when the NHS was first set up in 1948, and he's pointed across a house at the back of his garden, lived there all his life. Those people in that, they're Tories, he said. And when the NHS was set up, after they'd voted against it in Parliament time and time again, they got an instruction from head office, Conservative head office, go to the GP, get them to get everything you can free, because we want to break, break and bankrupt the NHS. 
it's a crazy story, but it's true. And, you know, I think the truth is they're out bent to destroy the NHS. And I think that's a central line of attack. So maybe be less elliptical. It might be my advice to our front bench. Let's just go straight for them. When um, when Rishi Sunak does say uh, that industrial action has contributed to the waiting list, whether or not we can debate about you know the pay settlement and whether they've been offered enough, and you know for, for regular viewers of the show will know that our position is that absolutely are not being offered enough. Mm. The fact of the matter is, if doctors are going on strike, operations, routine procedures, all that sort of thing gets delayed and cancelled, and the waiting lists get longer. He's not wrong to say that industrial action has lengthened the waiting list, is it? They're out to destroy the NHS. What do you expect them to do? And what happened? I, I know people who devoted all their lives to staying with the NHS were now so severely ill. They're saying, well, maybe we'll have to pay and go private. Yeah. And that's what's happening. So they're starving the NHS. They're driving people who work there into strike action or more often leaving, going into the private sector. And what's happening here, and let's be absolutely clear about it, this is a deliberate Tory strategy to drive up the private sector. Now, why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters, because it, your level of illness should be the only determinant as to where you are in the queue. But if you can then buy it, buy health services, then it becomes profoundly unfair, unequal, and disgraceful. And that's where we're heading. Ava, do you... Um, there's a lot of noise in the media, not, and not just, to be clear, from... Uh, there's also a lot of noise in here. I don't know if you heard that car reversing, yeah. wherever that be. The water yeah. It's the uh, it's right. it's the door on the bike shed. Um, <laughs> the uh, what was I going to say? There's a lot of noise being made about privatisation, either by stealth or deliberately in the NHS. That either in some way the private sector can relieve the problems in the NHS. I think uh, West Streeting has alluded to that as as much as um, as much as the Tories have. I mean. Your read on on where we are at the moment in relation to that, and and what John's just had to say there. Well, the, the big conversation has been those who can afford it should go because that will alleviate the strain, right? And that is just, to me, a, a, a clouded way or a gentle way of introducing people to private healthcare and basically saying that, look at this wonderful, shiny hospital that you can go to. You don't want to go to that dirty NHS hospital that's down the road. You can go up here. It's brand spanking new. It's American. It's in Birmingham. <laughs> um, you know, and it's more appealing. I do think that Labour are at fault with this as well because their strategy which does seem sensible on the outset, which was where Streeting was talking about this a couple of months ago, that he would clear the backlog mm. by putting buying up private hospital places and he would clear the backlog by getting those operations done on there. It's almost frustrating that the conversation has moved to private so quickly rather than actually just talking about how do we make the NHS sustainable. And I think to John's point, it's because they don't want it to be. No, they don't want it to be. Jo John, would you accept... If we were to let, let's talk about where we are right now, right? So, you know, once in a century pandemic, um, serious health emergency, right? Sure. We have we have these issues in the healthcare system, and if someone comes along and says, "Just this one time, we're going to use the private sector to alleviate some of the problems that we have here," do you have a problem with that? I, d I do really. I don't see. I don't see it. I mean, the NHS saved this country when the uh, the pandemic was on us. Those nurses, those doctors, the orderlies, the cooks, the cleaners, everybody, they went to work every day. Some of them died. Yeah. And it was only because we have a socialised medical system that we were able to fight off the pandemic. As soon as we threw it, then the politicians, the British establishment, the ruling class are at it again, saying, well, the only answer is to privatise. But hang on a minute, who was it who saved us from the 
effects of the pandemic. So no, if there's a problem of capacity in the NHS because it's, there's less beds, there's less doctors, nurses, and so on, well, and there's a private sector there, take the private sector into public ownership there and deliver go. more beds and more operations. There we go. That's the answer. Now you're speaking my language. Okay, thank you. you. Well, keep quiet for now. <laughs> During the pandemic as well, the elements of the NHS that were privatised were cogs of it that failed. I mean, you think about Randox or you think about the other testing facilities mm. that we use that mm. were private companies. Yeah. And what about all of the scandals that came out of that, that, you know, negative tests were being returned when there was actually a positive reading or they were just being thrown into the bin? Yeah. You know, the, the big lesson is when you outsource people, when they're trying to line their pocket, they take the piss. That is just the long and short of it. Well... You know, you've got to worry. Uh, I think everybody does worry, by the way, including some Tories, about how so much money, which was supposedly was to combat the uh, the pandemic, got into the hands of friends of Conservative ministers. Yeah. And let's be blunt about it, it's as near to corruption as it can get. And we better not say that because you'll cut it out with your lawyers, will let me say it, but it's very close I to corruption. I love that you think we have lawyers. <laughs> Just Ollie and I going, what do you reckon? Yeah, well, we didn't say it. Is it close to it? I did, I did. You say it was. I did, it's close to it. We know what we think. Yeah. No, I, um, I look, a lot of people have a problem with it, right? A lot of people have it. And it relates really for me, most importantly, when we are discussing, when there is a debate going around about um, financial decisions in government, whether it's you know um, borrowing, whether it's increasing taxation, basically, you know, how do we cost X policy that we would like to enact? And I think it's really important to sort of zoom out a little bit and reframe the debate and and go. No one, no one doubts when we have this pandemic no one starts no, no one questions the extra spending right everyone goes yeah well obviously furlough yeah we need to pay people's wages so 37 billion quid yeah. off we go um test and trace another i think about the same 37 billion quid and i'm I'm not saying i want to be clear i'm not saying that these things aren't worthwhile spends but the argument what i'm trying to say is when there's a political imperative to spend money we find the money oh, sorry and if you were talking about you Take your pick. Uh, two two child cap on benefits. Take that. Whether you want to build more hospitals, whether you whatever it is you want to do, people when you're talking about social good, when you're talking about improving either living or working conditions, particularly for working class people, people say, "Well, where's the money going to come from?" But the reason why they feel comfortable saying that is because they don't think it's a political imperative in the same way when they're talking about, let's say, furlough or anything like that. And I think that's um, I think our politics is poorer for that. You know what yeah. that's going on. Today, what was it announced? Half a billion pounds. Yeah, pound for nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Magic Molly Tree suddenly appeared, and I'm not against. I, I am in favour of uh, electric batteries and trying to convert quick as we can. Yeah. But the money just appeared from nowhere. It's a magic Molly Tree. They used to say there isn't such a thing, but there is when they choose to prioritise it. And uh, exactly. yeah, there is money. I mean, we're supposedly the same with the richest, sex richest country in the world. But where is the wealth? It's not a community I represent. I represent really quite poor working class communities. And my passion is speaking up for working class people. Um, but the money isn't in our community, but it's somewhere. But where the hell is it then? Uh, well, it's with the extremely wealthy people and the large corporations. And for me, you know, it's time to make a tax rate on them. Yeah, I, I, can, I completely agree with you, Joe. I think you, you say, where is the money, right? It's it's obvious. You, 
uh, Thames Water, right, in in Select Committee last week. Yeah. At, at, at some in some years, paying out dividends higher than the profits they're yeah. making. Yeah. You know, in the meantime, pouring yeah. sewage into the rivers. Exactly. Yeah. It makes total sense that it's a private company, Ollie, because water is so different. <laughs> and you know, I love, it's. Uh, I love this idea. I, I saw um, someone was making a joke about it being like, you know, the Thames Water CEO saying how hard it is to have a monopoly on a material yeah. that is absolutely fundamental to human yeah, existence. To life itself. We were really struggling to make money out of this. It's um, yeah, yeah, extraordinary. It's really if, is. If you uh, put a price on the air we breathe, they would. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah, sure. Let's privatize that as well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Not another one? It's the Politics Show podcast. Leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn. Mr. Speaker, the two-child benefit cap, as introduced by the Conservative Party, has left 250,000 children living in poverty. So can I ask the Prime Minister, does he take comfort in knowing that the heinous legacy of that policy will no longer just be protected by Conservative members, but by Labour members too? Mr. Mr. Speaker, I welcome the uh, Labour leader's newfound support for our policy, even though he previously committed to a different approach. But what I would say to the honourable gentleman and indeed the Labour front bench is that they don't have to worry too much, because given the Labour leader's track record, he's never actually kept a promise that he's made. (laughs) Stephen Flynn! Mr. Speaker, voters in Scotland are used to child poverty under the Tories. They almost expect it. But what they don't expect, what they don't expect is child poverty support from the Labour Party. And if we look very closely right now, there is a shiver running along the Labour front bench looking for a spine. Now, Mr Speaker, does this not tell us something much bigger? Bigger. Now, for children living in poverty in Scotland, Westminster offers them no real change. It offers them no real hope. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Now then, just last week, the Leader of the Opposition announced his new flagship policy, the two-child benefit cap. goes down very popular on this side of the House, but not so popular on that side of the House. But, Prime Minister, could you please tell the House when will the Leader of the Opposition jump off the bandwagon and be honest with the British public and tell them what he stands for? John, uh, Stephen Flynn there. Asking, well, he's going after Rishi Sunak, but he's going after Keir Starmer as well, isn't he? Because yeah. about the two-child benefit cap. Uh, on Sunday on Laura Kunzberg, Keir Starmer said he wouldn't be re- revisiting that cap. Um, 
Is Stephen Flynn right to be criticising Labour and the Tories over this policy? Well, look, it's quite clear that I got some research done by the library. We commissioned it weeks ago. So I'm not jumping on a bank wagon here to find out what happens. So there are 270,000 effectively families who are in poverty simply because of this cap. Now, I my uh, I come from a, a, a... I've got a brother and sister, so there's three of us. I've got three children. My parents had, had children. It's a normal thing to have two or three kids. But yet somehow the government has convinced the parts of the country that you've got to be... It's be punitive if you have more than two. But it sounds like the, the one-child family policy in China or somewhere. So, look, a simple change in the rules would take 270,000 families out of poverty like that for just over a billion pounds. It's a lot of money, it's a billion pounds, but not when you compare the wealth of the country. So I'm totally in favour of removing that. I've put down a motion in Parliament, quite a significant number of MPs have signed it, and I think there's a bandwagon on the roll here. I mean, the Labour Party was created in large part to tackle poverty. We want poor people to work for, to work and vote for us and be active for us. So I know where I stand. Keir Starmer um, said, I think it was yesterday actually, at the, the Tony Blair Institute conference, and viewers will uh, get a little insight into how I like to spend my evenings because I watched it last night. I'm doing Outside of my working hours, John. Um, and and um, Starmer's defense of this, he says, you know, We've been talking the talk about having to make tough decisions. Sure. We've been confronted with a tough decision. Sure. We're making it. Um, we can't keep putting these things off. We have to be fiscally responsible. And there, you know, there's £1.3 billion there. So what do you make of that? Well, I know what's really tough. Standing up to the big corporations and the wealthy people who've increased their wealth by literally hundreds of billions of pounds during covid well, the rest of us were all locked away and poor people were struggling and we had people in our village who couldn't get to the shop or anything. Uh, you know, we all know what happened. The rich were getting richer by an extraordinary amount of money. So I say to anybody who says they want to be tough, yeah, let's be tough. Let's take on the vested interests. And there is money there. It's a wealthy country. You just got to have the willpower to do it. So, well, let's, up, you know, let's be a tough guys then if that's what we want. If it's a macho contest. I think, you know, that's it. Let's get some backbone. Good mug going around uh, from the SNP today. Would you like to... Uh, I've things? seen your yeah. photograph. Yeah, I know. <laughs> 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 Thank you Recently very much. putting out controls uh, on family sizes. What's the point of Labour? There's a little note, a little note from Stephen Flynn. The Labour Party has a new range of mugs in production. Funny. Yeah, funny. funny. They're made in China, just like Sir Keir Starmer's latest policy. Oh, Okay. Yeah, well, there's a battle going in Scotland between the SNP and Labour. I'm not surprised that the SNP are, no. are, are attacking Labour and they use PMQs every week. Remember, the, the Prime Minister's a Tory. It is a Tory Britain that we're living in, but they spend all the time attacking Labour because the fight in Scotland is between Labour and the SNP. Mm. Look as though they're in trouble. So I'm not too tribal, but I am a Labour MP and you expect me to say something like that. But yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Thing about I thought you might family size, yeah, as well. Because yeah. what what's the um why why do we have this policy that you you look at it and you go so that's intended to induce like a smaller family? Why why as policymakers why do we want? But which is is objectively amusing when you think about how, I mean just two weeks ago we were sitting here and all the panels were talking about it. Why aren't millennials having children? Yeah. 
there's such a big problem that we're not giving birth anymore. And then well, why why would I? You're not gonna. I'm not looking for a handout, man. But do you know what I mean? Like a little help. Why not? Why not? Get out of my pub. It's the Politics Show podcast. Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does my right honourable friend share my unease that a bank that has the government as its largest shareholder should close the account of a senior opposition politician? Will he use the government's shareholding to ensure that there is an inquiry into these circumstances because the subject data access request makes it clear, or certainly indicates, that it is the person concerns political views that led to his cancellation. And does my right hon friend agree with me that however much we may find however much we may find them tiresome, members of the opposition deserve bank accounts? Listening to that, Ava, um, I was struck that Jacob Rees Mogg didn't declare an interest. Do you know, I would have actually teed this up for you because you made an excellent point. Thank you. Just before we came on out. Thank you. And I think you should make it now. Okay, I will. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg works with Nigel Farage on GB News. If Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to stand up during Prime Minister's questions and ask a question on behalf of Nigel Farage and this story around his bank account and potentially being denied access because of his political beliefs, my understanding of parliamentary procedure, and I will, you know, I'll accuse myself here, I'm not an MP and I'm not a lobby journalist either, but my understanding... I know. No, I am understanding. Neither of us came up with it. They did we? So we're put to shame. My understanding is that he should be declaring that interest before he raises that question in the chamber. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arguably, they've both got a common financial interest in uh, the company which they work for, yeah. which we won't mention because we don't want to publicise right-wing hey. nonsense. Yeah, we like joke politics. <laughs> Uh, however, what's also interesting about money and finance is allegedly, we'll be careful, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is an Irish citizen, so he's a member of the European Union, even though he, uh, oh, and I've written two, let's be clear, mm. even though he was a, uh, an arch Brexiteer, and he's got significant amounts of uh, financial holdings in Ireland rather than in Britain. So, look, I mean, there are some questions there which the mainstream media maybe don't want to ask, but people like Politics Joe to be asking and we should be uh, definitely inquiring what's going on there. You're right. It's not, um, he's not the only one, is he? A lot of prominent Brexiteers very keen to get their hands on Irish passports, European passports. Well, it only makes natural sense that you would spend, you know, what, six years of your life campaigning against <laughs> a big trading block yeah. to then re-enter that exactly. trading block individually. Exactly. <laughs> and I always think he's the MP for the 17th century, by the way. And he's not, I mean, when you see him, he's an extraordinary individual and it's yeah, it's tragic, I think, really, that a person from that background is uh, so his voice is so amplified by the mainstream media. Tidbit. One time when I ran into him, he said, How are you? And I was wearing a long leather jacket. And then he said, I've got to go because you look like you're in the Gestapo. <laughs> Chatting with chatting like that, it's a wonder that he's he's, he's not more popular. Um, <laughs> um, just, uh, I'd like to talk about the Nigel thing briefly, if if we may, because let's um, let's park his politics for a moment, and let's, if we were to accept at face value the claim that he has potentially been kicked out of this bank because of the political positions he holds. I have a problem with that. Yep. That is a serious civil liberties issue in my mind. I don't think banks should be deciding, oh, 
we don't like John Trickett MP. We don't like what he has to say about corporate interests. Therefore, we're closing his current account. I think that's a, I think that's a serious problem. Well, I don't, I don't think they do like me because I, <laughs> I remember a famous German who once said, if you want to make, get rich, don't rob a bank, but set one up instead. Yeah. It's the people who own the banks who make the money. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't have any sympathy for these people. I'm sorry, but you know, let him look after his money somewhere else. I don't care about Nigel Farage at all. But I am worried about the banks. I mean, I had a guy yesterday, Peter, I'm not going to say his full name, 88 years old. Yeah. He lives in a, a former mining village that I represent. He rings me up. He said, I'm 88. My wife's 88. He's got faulty hips. His eyes have nearly gone. And the local uh, Barclays, Barclays, I'm going to name them, have closed the branch, which he's been going for all his life. It's closed. They told him to go to Pontefract, where there were two branches, but now they're both closing. His eyes are so bad he can't see the pin machine uh, in order to get his money out. He can't drive. He's completely trapped. It's the banks are making huge amounts of money um, on the back of the rest of us, and then withdrawing uh, from. They're the people I care about. Yeah. Working class people be excluded by a private ownership of a banking system, which is more or less immoral. I don't give a damn about uh, about Nigel Farage having a bit of a problem with Coop's private bank, where you've got to have a million pounds in it or something to even open an account. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely true. And, and Actually, sorry to disagree with you, but yeah, you know, sometimes fine. we've got to have a bit of a yes, I like but it. I would also say, I'll throw my hands up, that I believed Coots's briefing when they said that it was true. purely because true. it was for monetary reasons. True. And yeah, for it to come out that it's for political reasons, that's annoying because it's sort of like, well, if you're going to kick him out because Precisely. of political reasons, yeah, then you do your do it with your whole chest. Yeah, with your yeah, chest. yeah. yeah. So I think that's fair. I'd like to find a, a, but, but a word. We mustn't well. focus all our time on the bloody Westminster yep. bubble and the wealthy. Totally when out in yep. the country, there's people hungry, older people struggling to get by, can't get in the NHS. Let's get out of Westminster and think about the real world. Yeah, I, I streets closed, post offices closed, ticket offices ticket closed. offices closed. I mean, and that's the other thing about Peter, the 88 year old. You know, the post office is his last resort to get cash, and that. They're all closing as well. I mean, there's people living personal crises every day in every community in our country because of the way that capitalism operates. And yet we don't talk about it. Yeah. Sorry to be too serious. Oh. But I do feel quite strong about it. Total rhubarb. It's the Politics Show podcast. Mark Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister mentioned our armed forces. Can I mention them again? We lost 457 personnel in Afghanistan killed and several thousand who suffered life-changing injuries. So I and some of my colleagues on the Defence Committee were absolutely stunned to see a video posted by our own chairman lauding the Taliban's governance of Afghanistan not mentioning they're still trying to identify and kill Afghan civilians who sided with NATO forces, and also not mentioning the fact they don't like girls to go to school. So can I make plain this was not in our name? And can I have the Prime Minister's assurance that this silly and naive act was not in his name either? John. Mark Francois mentioned there that um, Tobias Elwood had been to uh, Afghanistan and come back and had some pretty glowing things to say about the uh, the Taliban government. Um, what's what's go what's going on there? I mean, why 
Why is an MP going over? Give you a little bit of context. Yeah, so, so Tobias Elwood went over to Afghanistan. He's Good. been quiet for a couple of weeks. And then he concluded by making a video. And in that video, the, the, sub, the text in the Twitter thread was explaining we should put our embassy back in Afghanistan because the Taliban have really turned things around. The opium mm. trade is, is, is down. It's less, there's less corruption. Sure. Um, he, was, he was selling all of the pocket, uh, positives. Landmines were being cleared up. Nothing on the women. I was just going to say that. You know, young <laughs> girls and women are very apparently discriminating. We must be careful here not to become imperialist or culturally imperialist ourselves. But yeah, I mean, it does look it's a pretty horrendous uh, uh, place. But on the question of the service people, I thought it was quite touching at the beginning um, about the apology that the state has given uh, to gay people who were in the armed forces who were treated absolutely shocking and killed quite recently, all our lifetimes. And I did think that, was, uh, for once, I felt as if Sunak was actually, he, he did, you felt as if he meant what he was saying, which you don't always feel with politicians. And we forget how recent discrimination was against people in the grounds of a sexuality. It's quite shocking, the history of all that. Absolutely. We were talking about that the other day, weren't we, about how um, some men who who are still closeted of a certain generation, because when they were growing up, yeah. it was an offence. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, could I just ask you for a final word there? You said um, it was one of the rare times that you actually felt like Sulak was being sincere yeah. when he was speaking yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the chamber. I mean, just on a broader note, you know, watching him and Starmer go back and forth and the, the quality of the debate in these sessions, I just sort of asked you for a kind of closing remark on that. Well, I look, I think the PMQs, uh, when I first came into Parliament, it was twice a week and it's now once a week. It is a pure piece of theatre where they both, you have two people, usually two blokes, trying to knock hell out of each other. It's politics as a spectacle, but politics on the streets and in the villages I represent and in the towns and cities, politics is a matter, in some cases, of life and death. And, you know, I think we're in a bubble. We're in a bubble, and we don't really reflect what goes on. So every day, I worked in number 10 down the street for a while, Every day when I walked up down the street, I used to try to remind myself, look, I'm a plumber. I worked with my hands to build houses, to provide homes for people. Never forget, John, who you are. But I'm afraid, you know, we do get in a bubble, we focus on this spectacle, and you wonder whether actually we're insulated and isolated from the real-life experiences of so many millions of people. It's a pretty powerful point to leave things, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Avis Santina, John Trickett, thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Um, let's do it again. See you guys in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to that episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, I reckon you'll also enjoy Unfiltered, our interview podcast. Here's a little taste of the episode with Gary Lineker. I love my life. I enjoy, I enjoy fame. People are lovely. It's so easy to be distracted by the tiny percentage on, on Twitter. In the real world, it's not like that at all. I think I've had only two instances in my entire life where people have had a pop. One old lady elbowed me in the back. <laughs> she was on her way to a Tommy Robinson rally. Really? Yes. Okay, that nice. An old lady, she gave me, whoa, lady car. Yeah. And then I had another one where I was going shopping, my groceries, and some bloke shouted out of the road, you hate Britain. You hate Britain, don't you? I'm going, no, I really love Britain. But anyway. That's unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore wherever you get your podcasts.